Memory is a tricky thing, isn't it? We'll struggle sometimes to remember things. We get going and we're talking and then we forget things. And we have different ways we try and remember. Sometimes we have little post-it notes we stick up on our refrigerator. We tie a string around our finger. We put reminders in our telephones, in our devices, to pop up and remind us of things. But there are other ways we try and remember. Some of you maybe keep journals or diaries. You write down events as you go to them. We take pictures. We take pictures of events and oftentimes we gather then as a family and we maybe get out a photo album or maybe years ago your dad broke out the slide projector or the old home videos and you watched those and you remembered. But one one thing you may have noticed as you did that is sometimes we all remember things a little differently, don't we? One of us talks about a story and the other says, no, that's not the way it happened. But memory is a powerful thing. But there's another thing about memory and being remembered is thinking about how we ourselves want to be remembered. Sometimes people talk about passing down your legacy and thinking about when I'm gone, when I've died, which is something that happens for each one of us, how will we be remembered? Maybe it's a question you've asked yourself. How will people remember me? At a funeral yesterday for Barb Dodson, and people spoke of the way they remembered Barb and, and how fond they were of her and the memories and the joys they brought. And sometimes I think about that myself as what will they say at my funeral? And maybe you think about that too. How will your kids remember you? How will your friends and neighbors remember you? How will your family remember you? We seek to leave a legacy. Now I want us to think about this idea of remembering and being remembered as we enter into our story today. So we're in week two of a series looking at Jesus on the cross as we lead up to the celebration of Easter. And Jesus, as he was on the cross, he had seven things he said, seven words and really seven phrases that he said. And so we're going to spend each week looking at one of those. And last week, we looked at this statement where he looked at those around him and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And reminded of God's heart of forgiveness and reaching out to those in their desperation. But today we're going to look at another set of words. So kind of to set the scene again, we have Jesus hanging on the cross, but he's not there by himself. But the gospel writers have told us instead that he has been led out to be crucified with two other criminals. We don't know anything about them. We don't know anything else about them. Some translations say criminals, some say robbers. Chances are, whatever they did, it was a little more than shoplifting. People weren't crucified for petty crimes. Crucifixion was a crime reserved for crimes against the state, against the power, against the empire. The Romans used crucifixion, this brutal, demeaning, shameful way of executing someone, as a way to demonstrate their power. So when someone was executed, it was a way of saying, do not question the power of Rome. And so whoever these two men were, and this is one of the strange things, the the trouble with our scripture, or a trouble we have with it sometimes, I should say, is we wonder, and our curiosity is not satisfied sometimes. We listen to these stories, we're like, well, who are these two guys? What did they do wrong? And then as we go into the story, we have questions about, 
Why were they asking the questions they were asking? And how did they understand these things? And, and why did one treat Jesus this way and another treat Jesus this way? And so all these questions that we have. But we see these three men hang out across, but the words the crowd gathered around are focused on Jesus. And one of the things it says is that the people stood watching. And so you have one group of people who are standing watching. And you're wondering what's going on. And then it says the rulers even sneered at him. So we have the watchers and we have the mockers. You know, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Notice the big if that comes in there. So there, there are those standing around questioning, wondering about him. And crucifixion was not simply designed to be painful, which it was. It was also designed to be shameful. Those who were dying were stripped of everything, typically stripped naked and hung before the crowd. And so not only are you in excruciating pain, but you're in excruciating pain for everyone to watch. And I know how many of us are, when we're in pain or when we're sick, we try and hide it a little bit, don't we? We don't want others to know what we're going through. We also put on clothes, as most societies do, because we're, we don't want others to see ourselves. And so now Jesus, along with these criminals, are hanging there in shame and in agony. And around him, to add to that shame, to add to the problem, are the people around him making fun of him, mocking him. We have the leaders. He saved others, let him save himself. And then the soldiers join in. They also came up and they mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. So we have the religious leaders. Then we have the soldiers. And then it comes down to even one of the criminals, one of these rebels that is hanging beside him, joins in and hurls insults at him. And so you know it's getting bad when every level of society is mocking you. When everyone is joining in. Even the guy who's suffering the same fate that you are. Even the guy who has no right to be doing it is throwing these insults at him. And it's interesting, this criminal we'll call criminal number one, who not only hurls insults at him, but then says, well, aren't you the Messiah? Well, save yourself and, and us. So he's kind of hedging his bets, isn't he? On the one hand, he's like, well, I'm going to make fun of you because you're a terrible person. But on the other hand, if you can do it, go ahead and save me too. But then we come to criminal number two. It'd be nice to know their names, wouldn't it? Instead of talking about criminal one and criminal number two, we could say Bob and Dave or Jim and Jerry, whatever their name is. We don't know, though. But it says the other criminal rebuked him. In other words, criminal number one, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. He recognizes they did wrong. We don't know what, but they did wrong. And they are suffering the right thing. But he knows somehow, and we wish we knew how. How does he know Jesus is innocent? What does he know about him? But he knows that Jesus did nothing wrong, for he has done nothing wrong. But then it's these words where he turns to Jesus. And he calls him by name. Jesus, remember me. And I would invite you even sometimes as an exercise, read through the Gospels and notice how many times do people call Jesus by name. There aren't many. There are very few. Think only one other one. 
And in this one, Jesus, remember me. Now to remember. And this is the thing that I want us to think about for a minute, is what does it mean to be remembered? To remember him. And so we talked about memory a little bit, and sometimes when we think of memory, we just talk about recalling an event. But when we read through our Bible, there's this idea of being remembered that's much more significant. And it goes back to the earliest pages of the Bible. One of the earliest stories in our Bible is the story of the flood. So remember this story, God has created a good and beautiful creation and he's put people in it. But eventually people rebel against him and it gets worse and worse and worse. And God chooses to cleanse his creation with a flood. But he chooses eight people, Noah and his wife and the three sons and their three wives, to save out of this. And Noah and his family go onto this ark along with all the animals and they're floating on the flood. And then in the middle of the story, it says, and God remembered Noah. Now, one way to read that would be thinking like Noah's out there in the middle floating on the flood and God is up in heaven, off in heaven. All of a sudden he's like, oh yeah, that Noah dude, he's still out there. I better do something about it. That's not what we're talking about. When it says God remembered Noah, it's a remembering of promise. It's a remember with an action. It's not simply like, oh, God forgot and said, oh, wait, I better do something because that guy's going to run out of food pretty soon. But he remembers him. And then when Noah gets off the ark, God puts a rainbow in the sky. And he says, and when, then when I look at the rainbow, I will remember my promise. Now, I don't think the rainbow in the sky is God's version of a post-it note. It's not God's way to look and say, oh, yeah, that's right, I made a promise. But instead, it's a way in which God remembered. And for God, remembering is not only is looking back to a few past action, but then acting in the present based on it. So remembering is remembering something in the past, is recalling a past event, and then acting in the present based on that. We could go through, we could spend half the morning going through the Old Testament and time after time after time we hear this phrase of and God remembered or people asking God to remember. And God remembered his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And God remembered. And the people come and they say, and God remembered. And it's a way of saying God looked back on this thing in the past and continued and did something in the present based on that. And so when the people cried out in the Psalms and they said, God, remember your promises, it's not simply a request to God to say, hey, remember you did that thing a long time ago. It's a way to say, based on that thing in the past, I want you to do something now. When we celebrate communion once a month, we have it on our table, in remembrance of me. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And I think what Jesus is getting at when he says that is when we take communion and remember, it's not just for us to say, oh yeah, that's right, Jesus died for us. It's a way to say, based on what happened in the past, we live differently now in the present. So when this criminal, number two, looks and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, I don't think what he's suggesting is that, Jesus, when you come back, I hope that you say, oh yeah, there was that other dude. He died right next to me. wonder what happened to him. That's not 
what Jesus is asking. What Jesus is saying, or what this criminal is saying when he says, remember me to Jesus, he's saying, Jesus, remember me. In other words, recall, do something for me. It's almost a way of saying, save me, but it's not an immediate way, but to say, remember this, recall this, and when you come into your kingdom, act on who you are and do something in the present. And so he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I always wonder, like, how does this criminal hanging on a cross recognize Jesus as a king? How does he know those things? There's a sign above his head that says, this is the king of the Jews. But he's watching a man die in agony. He's watching a man die in shame. Certainly not like anyone would have expected a Messiah or a rescuer to look. But he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's one of those curiosities, isn't it? To say, how in the world, what made this guy dying on a cross think the guy next to him had anything to do with God's kingdom? No answers. I don't know. Except we can guess somehow God's spirit spoke to the man and said something. But he says, remember me. But then the words of Jesus. This criminal has recognized what he has done and he cries out to Jesus for help. And Jesus' answer is, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly. Really, he says, amen. In other words, this is true. This isn't just an idea. This isn't just an opinion. But this is, there is no doubt about this. I tell you this. Jesus says it by his own authority. Truly, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. And what comes to your mind when you hear the word paradise? Yeah, hold on a second. Some of you maybe think like a really big golf course or a big beach. It's something paradise. The word paradise is a funny word because it doesn't show up in our Bibles actually a whole lot. Three times in the New Testament. Once here and two other places, once in one of Paul's letter, once in the book of Revelation. Three times this word paradise, and, and oftentimes in our colloquial usage of the word paradise, we just mean a really nice place, don't we? Don't like, oh, it's a paradise. The word paradise itself is confusing because we don't know entirely where it comes from, but we know this much about it, that the word paradise comes from a Persian loan word, and so languages, the funny way languages work, a word is developed in one language, it gets passed down to another, and sometimes we simply continue it, and we use the word and borrow it just simply from the old language, and never really change how it's said. And paradise is one of those. It was a Persian word, which meant garden. And then it was taken over into Hebrew, and then simply translated, so it became, I mean, into, into Greek and then into, into Hebrew, then into Greek and then into English. And simply the word paradise just simply means a garden. And so we think about gardens and we think, hmm, where else in the Bible has a garden showed up? Gethsemane, but also back in the very beginning. A garden. And so God creates a garden. And what's going on in the garden? People are there. And who else is there? God is there. God is there with them in the garden. And then at the end of that story in the first couple chapters of Genesis, the people leave the garden and there's a cherubim and a flaming sword placed at the entrance of the garden. And so there's this separation that goes between them. And so the people are no longer in the presence of God. They are taken out of that presence of God and barred from that. And so now Jesus is saying, you are now going to, in paradise, is a re-entering because he says, I will, you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say you're going to be in paradise. 
But there's that key little phrase. He says, you will be with me. Because something about paradise, something about the garden is about being with God. Another thing that makes you kind of go, hmm, is to think of another story in the gospel for all you Bible nerds out there. Jesus, in the gospel of John, after his resurrection, Mary comes and sees him, and she mistakes him for what when she sees him? Gardener. Huh. Deep meaning? Maybe. Maybe not. But interesting. I mean, yeah, they're in a garden. Makes sense. He thinks he's a gardener. But I often wonder sometimes, like, Jesus or John makes the point of telling us that story. But she could have just, he could have just said she didn't know who he was. But instead, he says she thought he was the gardener. And we know from reading our Bible, we don't get a whole lot of details. So when we get a little detail, sometimes we have to sit up and say, huh, why did John make that point? There's no way to prove it, but I think part of it has to do with this idea of gardens from the beginning of the Bible is this idea of God being with his people. And so when Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise, he's talking about being with him. He's not simply talking about this really nice place where everything is great, but it's more about the fact of being with God. And so... As we think about that, that promise is for us too. And so we can look at it in a couple different ways. As we look at this story and think about, now how do I deal with this? Because none of us are hanging on a cross. None of us are beside Jesus. So but where are we in life? Are we a mocker? Are we one of those ones who is having trouble understanding the ways of Jesus? And I'll admit, I'm one of those sometimes. God does things sometimes that don't make any sense to me. And I'm sitting there like, God, why don't you do something? Just as the mocker said, well, if you're the son of God, if you are the son of God, why don't you save yourself? And I think I found myself sometimes watching things happening and say, God, if you are a good and loving God, why don't you do something here? And so sometimes we find ourselves in that position of a mocker. But sometimes we're in the need of the promise of Jesus. To hear those words, you will be with me. Being reminded of this promise that we will be with him, never having to fear, never being separated from the love of God. This idea of saying that Jesus, as he died, made it possible to be with him. He took down that barrier at the entrance to the garden and said, you can be with me. And a lot of our fears, a lot of our struggles, a lot of everything can be solved, can be helped as we realize that God is with us. To hear those words of Jesus says, you will be with me, is in other words of saying, I will be with you. To say that Jesus isn't going to leave us, he isn't going to abandon us, and we're in fear and we're wondering what's going to on, and we need that promise, a reminder that he will be with us and we never have to fear that we will be with him. As I met over the years with people who are near the end of life, even people who followed Jesus for a long time, sometimes there's those questions about what's going to happen. Sometimes there's a little bit of fear. 
there's a little bit because there is something scary about death. And in here in these words, a reminder that we do not need to be afraid. That for those who put their trust in Jesus, there is no reason to fear that God is with us. When we call out to Jesus, when we acknowledge who we are, when we put our trust in him, these are words of hope for us. These are words of hope for us. I talked at the beginning about how we long to be remembered sometimes, that we think about sometimes the legacy that we will leave. How will people be remembered by us? How will people remember us? How will, be, how will we be remembered by others? And what I want to suggest to you is that the more significant question, the greater question is not how will we be remembered by others, but the most significant thing is that we will be remembered by Jesus. That we will be remembered by Jesus. So will you be remembered by Jesus? And for anyone who calls out to him, who says, Jesus, I need you. You will be remembered by him, which means you will be with him in paradise. So hear this good news today, church. That the most important thing is to be remembered by Jesus. And that those who call out to him will be remembered. And will be with him in paradise. Amen.